Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Bear. It's difficult, if not outright insincere, to talk about free speech on campus today without considering what happened at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville in the summer of 2017. What happened there has changed our conversation in this country. But what really happened? Today I speak with Ben Doherty, who works at the University of Virginia's law school and who was there during these events. He explains why this is not a matter of free speech, but probably of violence, and gives us a bit more background on how to approach such events back in the past and in the future. Welcome. Today, I'm really excited to speak with Ben Doherty, who works at the University of Virginia Law School, research librarian, head of instruction, and you also have a law degree. So you're both a lawyer and someone who works in the University of Virginia Law School. Thank you for joining Unmuted, the podcast. I'm trying to make sense a little bit better of the issues surrounding speech on campus, and you are at the University of Virginia. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your experiences over the last two years, which must have been very difficult, I assume. Thanks. Happy to talk with you. And yeah, it has been a difficult two years here, both at the university and in Charlottesville. I think maybe a lot of people don't realize that even before the events of last summer, there was a lot of white supremacist activity in the city revolving around the Confederate monuments, attacks on members of city council. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a long two years. You were at the law school. And so there's, as you're saying, there's the city of Charlottesville where some of these events and these activities happen. And then, then there's the university. And I've spoken to a few students and a couple of your colleagues could you say a little bit about why and how the university figures in all of these controversies, which are larger but center on UVA in some aspects? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the first thing to remember about the University of Virginia is that it has been at the center of white supremacist thinking for hundreds of years. So going all the way back to Jefferson, up through defenses of slavery, and into the 20th century, where the you know university professors were supporting and promoting eugenics, the university was a leading thinker in the movement for racial purity laws and segregation. And so this is really nothing new at the University of Virginia. And so it, it really should not be surprising to people that UVA was at the center of some of the things happening last summer here regarding white supremacy. Uh, not to mention that two of the main organizers of the rallies last summer are actually University of Virginia graduates. And since you're saying this has been part of the history of the university, which also, of course, wants to stand for other values today, and many students probably, you know, have a range of opinions. So has the university before the last two years addressed this? Can you make a sense of in what ways they've tried to address their own legacy and their own history as an institution? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the institution itself has done some, taken some legitimate steps to address its white supremacist history. There is a group here on campus called UCARE that, along with the president, has 
done a lot of work to memorialize the history of slavery on campus. And they're still working on that now, creating new memorials on campus so that people can understand the full history of the university. And so that's been really good work. At the same time that I think the university needs to do a lot more to confront its own continued legacy and support for white supremacy. Could UVA's way of dealing with that, as you're saying, they ought to do more, but they've tried something. Could it function as a model for American society, for our country as a whole, sort of confronting and acknowledging our own histories and in a way that moves everybody forward and doesn't stall, which we've seen in UVA, I think the complicated thing is that some people have really felt it hasn't produced the right results, these kinds of engagements. Yeah, that's right. I think the way the, the way I would like to see the university be a model for the rest of the country is to actually take some of the more radical steps that are needed to truly confront the system of white supremacy in the country here. And so that's where the university has not been willing to go as of yet. So, for example, students on campus have called for a number of steps here, including banning all of the white supremacists who came on campus last summer with their torches, revoking the degrees of Jason Kessler and Richard Spencer, and then also seriously taking a look at actual reparations. So this university made a lot of its wealth off of slavery and has not yet seriously looked at paying actual legitimate reparations, which, which could take a number of different forms including admissions to the school or actual payment towards families and ancestors or family members of, of people directly affected. And so I think the university could take some more radical steps to actually confront this legacy of white supremacy. Other universities are grappling with similar things. So Georgetown or Brown University have also made efforts that are related to these efforts. If we go yeah. back to your first point, the idea that some of the white supremacists would be barred from entering campus after these events. So in some ways, what had led up to August 11th and 12th? And then before we get to what should happen now to actually keep the campus safe and accommodate everybody. So specifically what led up to August 11th, I mean, there were white supremacists had held rallies in Charlottesville every month beginning in May 2017. And so with the initial torch rally led by Richard Spencer and his cohorts in May, there were additional white supremacist rallies all through the summer, at least one a month, including the Klan rally on July 8th. And people knew that they were organizing specifically to lead up to August 11th and 12th. So that was well known by university officials. It was well known by city officials and people in the city that this was all leading up to what was going to be a major white supremacist demonstration on August 11th and 12th. Then specifically on August 11th itself, people also knew by the afternoon of August 11th that there would be a large group of white supremacists coming to UVA grounds and, and marching through it with torches. They informed university officials. Students let university officials know that this was going to be happening that evening. And then sure enough, it did. You know, they began gathering later that evening on August 11th, around nine o'clock or so, and then marched through the campus while the university police and university officials basically stood aside and, and did nothing. And presumably, if I make sense of it from the outside, because the University of Virginia is a public institution with some limited purpose because it has a particular mission, but they 
felt presumably they had to allow people to march there because anybody can enter your campus, right? Uh, anybody can choose to walk through grounds. So do you think the thinking was we can't stop them because this is a public place and they have a right to be here? Well, I think that's only one part of it. So I think, yes, you're right. So this is a public university. Anybody is free to walk through the grounds as they wish. That's not what this group of people was doing. This was a mob of mostly white men marching through the night with torches, which we know from history is not just taking a stroll through grounds, but is actually a threat of violence. You know, a, a large group of people chanting racist slogans, carrying torches through the night is a threat of violence that actually did lead to violence later on that same evening against when they attacked students and, and staff members. So I think, yes, I think partially the university was perhaps a bit paralyzed in thinking that they would they had to allow this kind of activity. But I think a large part of it was cowardice on, on their part. I think they were afraid of being sued by these white supremacists, as, as has happened on, on other campuses. And they also didn't want bad publicity. And I think they were probably hoping that maybe this would come and go without a lot of publicity. And so they failed to act. And then the exact opposite happened when they began attacking students and staff members here. So what you're saying is probably the a reasonable assumption would be the administration felt couldn't do something, then they chose not to do something, and then they felt this would pass, it'd be a difficult night, and we would all move on. And now it's been inscribed in the nation's awareness as a really terrible sequence of events. So that evening, yeah. do you think students on, at the university, how did they respond to this since you're saying there had been other marches throughout the summer, so they were aware this was going to happen? So how did students respond to this? They weren't all in session because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a fall term yet. But what was their attitude generally and the staff and faculty? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so not all students were here because it, it was the summertime, but a lot of students acted with a lot of courage in that particular situation. They notified university officials about what was happening. They let university officials know that it was frightening, that they felt unsafe based on what was happening. But then a large group of very courageous students stood out there together to oppose these white supremacists and were subjected to violent attacks because of it. And so, yeah, there was not, uh, you know, the, the full student body was not here. But a lot of the students really showed what I thought was really wonderful leadership and courage to do what the university itself was not willing to do and actually show up in opposition to, to these violent white supremacists. You're trained as a lawyer and you also work at the university. You have a law degree and you have a degree in African-American studies, right? So it's, yeah, it's that's a, right. a range of disciplines. So when you look at these events, can you, can you make sense of them as a, as a lawyer in it? legal framework, but also as a community member and participant, someone who's really affected by this? How do you how do you navigate that for somebody who's not at UVA? Yeah, so it's interesting. And so, you know, the juxtaposition of thinking of it in terms of legal framing versus thinking of it in terms of a community member. One thing I think that has frustrated me is that you have a tendency within the legal community to seek kind of a preservation of the status quo. And so we had a lot of explanations going through the through the summer coming from lawyers or officials of of how, you know, oh, we're, well, our hands are tied or there's nothing we can do 
the law says such and such, which means we have to allow this these kinds of activities to take place, which to me, I think, is disappointing as both someone with a legal background and as a community member. You know, there's a term activist lawyers or movement lawyers, which is something of which there there just is not a lot. There are not a lot of lawyers who are willing to kind of take that risk and, and kind of push the law to where it should be. You get a lot more lawyers, um, officials, prof- professors who I think see their job as defending the, the status quo, I guess, kind of taking a more normative a- approach to things. And for me, that was very frustrating because I think what was happening was was obvious. This has happened frequently through history. This happened in Charlottesville when they built the Confederate monuments back in the early 1920s. There was a huge Klan rally and a huge cross burning in the week leading up to when they unveiled the Robert E. Lee statue here. And so this should have been nothing new, not a surprise to people. And so the fact that, you know, people from the legal community perhaps defaulted back to saying, oh, well, you know, what are we going to do? They have free speech rights was disappointing to me because it, when you, you look at it within its history, to me, this is this was not about free speech. This is violence. This is this, these are threats of violence and actually violence being enacted on our streets, at which point kind of all the status quo thinking that you get from the legal community fell short. It's, uh, it's and- interesting also that you're saying that it's not a free speech issue. It's a safety issue, a security yeah. for the community. These students are yeah. living on grounds on this campus. Yes. But that the legal community, when you're saying people said, my hands are tied, I can't do anything, the law is the law. I think what's interesting, could there be a way to say that, but then make a very strong statement or take action that says, while the law is the law, we condemn and actually act against this. No. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I think you absolutely should. That's what should should be done. Yes. And do you think the the university found a way? I'm not singling out University of Virginia, but I think it's really instructive for everybody. Did they find a way to assure the students to say, while our hands may be tied legally at this moment, we most strongly condemn everything that is being presented here under this mantle of free speech because these are not our values. No, I no, I don't think the university went far enough in doing that. Yes, they they certainly made statements about how the values represented by these white supremacists are not the values of the university. They condemned the white supremacists in words, but they didn't. They, they did not actually support the students. Um, they did not support them on August 11th when the students were attacked. They did not support them afterwards. The university president placed some of the blame on the students themselves, saying that they didn't do a sufficient job warning the university, which was just not a, not a true statement. And then I think a, another example is on September 12th, so a month after you know these violent white supremacist rallies in Charlottesville, a large group of students held a protest here at the university in which they shrouded the, one of the Jefferson statues on campus. Peaceful protest arguably a free speech, a demonstration of free speech. They shrouded the Jefferson statue, something that has been done before. Students did that. Ba- this, did the same thing, I think, back in the 1920s as a form of political protest. And yet what the university president said about that in an email to alumni, uh, she condemned those actions by the students, saying that they had desecrated sacred ground. Uh, and so I 
don't think that the university has been fully supportive of these students. I don't think the university has been fully supportive of, of protecting its community. I think they have instead defaulted under the guise of free speech or other reasons. They've defaulted to preserving the status quo too much in, in this instance. How do you, your own role is, you know, it's your professional obligation to take care of students and you work at yes. the university and you've devoted a great part of your life to actually creating an environment for students where they can learn, where people conduct research, etc. So what was your way to chart a sort of path through this? That's because let's say the university didn't respond in the right way. And as I said, University of Virginia is one of many universities, very few Universities at this point, I think, know quite what to do, which is why right. I'm so interested in this. I think they feel rather helpless, and I think they feel very much framed in a debate that if they take any step in the wrong direction, they're against free speech, which they right. can't, or they're against some. So, so how did you navigate those couple of weeks when students are arriving on campus now after these days in August and to, con to convey to them of what does this university stand for? Well, one, I want to say, I don't think personally for me that I necessarily navigated it particularly well. I'm casting blame on the university itself, but I, I don't think I'm blameless myself in, in what happened this summer. On the night of August 11th, I was across the street outside of a church where another event was taking place. I knew that these white supremacists were coming to attack students, and yet I decided for a variety of reasons to stay across the street at the church instead of going up to help be with the students and, and support them there. And so I guess one answer to your question is I don't think I have navigated it particularly well. Beyond that, I think it's important to realize that a lot of students here, even before what happened on August 11th and 12th, don't feel welcome here, don't feel safe on campus here. You know, and I'm talking about students of color, uh, women, trans students. And so this is not just about August 11th and 12th. And I think so for me personally, since then, I've, I've navigated it in, in a couple of ways. One is to try to let students know that they sh they have a right to feel safe here on their own campus within in their own home and then two to continue to you know work kind of in my activist role to prevent this kind of thing from happening again and to point out the hypocrisy of either the city or the university when it comes to these kinds of issues and the hypocrisy you think is in the the kind of reflexive abstraction of saying it's a free speech issue, they have a right to speak, and everything that happens afterwards or in relation to that is a separate issue that ought not to happen, shouldn't happen, we are sorry it happens, but we still have to protect this free speech principle. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly it. That's the hypocrisy is these kind of espousing of, of these values kind of in, in a philosophical sense but not actually supporting and protecting the people who actually live and work here. There's also this, and, and I don't know if this is in something that is just of a particular academic nature, but there's, you know, people like to see this kind of stuff as happening in the past. And so I think you kind of alluded to that a little bit, um, that each event that has happened in the past is something that's already done, and each new event is, is something different. Um, and so there'll be a lot of talk about, you know, what happened in the civil rights movement or in prior protest movements. 
But then when that stuff is actually happening right now, there's very little support from it for it from the university. So when people are agitating or demonstrating right now, there's no support for that happening right now. So actual active resistance to white supremacy right now is not supported, while the university at the same time kind of espouses this nostalgia for protest movements of, of the past. Which which is also a part of what a university ought to do, is to study the history carefully and how much support was there for civil rights movements, how much support was right. there for protesting athletes, were right. they welcomed and celebrated, were people who, are, who were even doing peaceful protests characterized as mobs or as violent protesters over right. and over. So, and do you think the students are um, aware that the university is, or there's a lot of teaching, of course, going on, and I've talked to students, yeah. which I find really the, the heartening thing is, I think what I'm kind of hopeful, makes me hopeful is that there's t there are 20 year olds who know far more than I will probably ever know, <laughs> even as yeah. much as I studied. Yeah. So they're actually quite informed, I think, that they are in a struggle that has precedent and that there were different responses to it, right? That's right. Yeah, the students are wonderfully informed. I mean, the, the many of the student activists here at, at U, UVA are really bright, really know what they're doing, really understand the context of what's happening in their own particular role within kind of the whole history of, of protest movements, not only here at UVA, but elsewhere also, um, and there also, as you said, there is also a lot of really wonderful teaching taking place at the university right now. So the university did revamp its first year curriculum in a fairly radical way to kind of have their first year students as they come in, be able to confront and, and discuss uh, these exact kinds of issues. And there are, yeah, some really good teaching um, taking place there and I'm confident in the in the student activists at UVA. I mean, it, it's a great group of students who I think you're right really know exactly what they're doing. I'm kind of curious about this term student activist because I would think, and coming from the outside, I would think I have um, some capacity to have some reverence for Thomas Jefferson. Although people have told me they would not endorse anything he stands for, ah. um, but. Student activist, probably in you know eighteen oh six or eighteen thirteen, whatever it would have been called, a student citizen or an engaged citizen, right? Because as we know, the the founders and framers, I mean, they were radicals and activists, and the Declaration yeah. of Independence was a radical gesture. So, in some ways, whether the term activist, whether how many of the students are self-identified activists and how many are responsible citizens of their of their communities who. And this is interesting, where's the line between someone who actually gets out, takes a position, and the other students who I think are feeling now brought into these discussions, or so it's complicated, how do they take a proper position there, or what do they, what do, they do besides studying and learning? Yeah, and I think yeah, the the term activist, you're right, is a is a hard one. Like, where do you draw that line? And I don't think you easily can. I, I think many of the students here are completely engaged citizens, interested in these issues, grappling with them on a daily basis. And then you have a, a smaller group who perhaps are interested in actually taking direct action, you know, on on the on the streets kind of forcing the issue in that way. So you have, I think you have both going on. And I like to think that the, the smaller group that you might call activists are helping to propel all of the community forward to really confronting these issues. Right. And I'm, I'm raising a question and I'm fully aware mm -hmm. that it's a difficult one. I don't know the answer that I think 
the word activist is in the process of being tainted in the mainstream press as saying those are agitators, difficult, because the entire opposition to racist provocateurs has been branded as these intolerant students, the enemies of free speech. I don't want to participate in that. So I'm kind of interested that the term has to be wrested back. That's why I would think Jefferson and Madison would be called properly activists today. Right. I know people right. would disagree with this in a way, but I'm right. doing it for a purpose because I'm very interested in when terms move to one side. Yeah. And if you use them, you've already made an entire value judgment about them. Sure. So, but I think I agree. I, I mean, to me, there's nothing wrong with the term activist. I think, as you also mentioned, the term agitators. And I think that's important. I mean, we don't get, we don't move forward without agitation. I think the whole idea of confronting and dismantling white supremacy requires dismantling the status quo. And you don't do that without agitation. And yeah, you can see what's going on, you know, in the in the media, the, the right has been very effective in kind of using these terms. You know, they in Charlottesville, they like to use the term Antifa to paint a particular fictional group of people that they say are, are violent and opposed to free speech. And I actually think that you need agitation. You you need direct activism. I mean, society doesn't move forward just by kind of sitting still on the on the status quo. And so I really admire the students who are citizens who are kind of taking that more active role to agitate, to agitate the system and and help it progress. Right. And if, if I can ask you, you've also because you said you are kind of you have these two hats, you're wearing these two hats, you are an activist and you're also an employee of the university and you work in the law school library, probably, um, you know, a bastion of, you know, <laughs> abstract thinking in a certain way, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. said, there's not so many activist lawyers. So right. your role in this, how has that been in terms of, can you see ways in which the university could empower more of its staff or faculty to take these roles. I think people are very hesitant right now. I also think because we've seen people, their consequences, people are worried. There's a lot of pushback. At the same time, over the past year, I think since Charlottesville, I think people have actually been moved to reflect more and say, maybe there's something more at stake or maybe I got this free speech debate wrong. So this is a slight shift, I, I perceive. Yeah, that's right. And there are consequences. You know, I've faced consequences. And that's really unfortunate. I think, to me, you know, perhaps the, you know, university, not just this university, but but all universities could be more honest, like we were talking before about looking at the history of the civil rights movement and how, you know, where we kind of in a university you have this nostalgia for what happened in the past which is perhaps not entirely honest. I think you mentioned that at the time the civil rights movement was taking place, it was not particularly popular. It wasn't with white mainstream America, I think. Exactly. It was was probably, it was driven by the incredible courage and sacrifice by mostly African Americans and a few allies, but most white Americans probably said, let's... People to keep it quiet is tough, but, you know, we'll slowly move towards something better. 
Right. And and I think if the if university could be more honest about that and realize that what's happening now, this kind of agitation, this direct opposition to white supremacy is not the problem. You know, if we're going to look back at the civil rights movement and and extol its virtues, I think universities need to recognize that agitators now are doing that same kind of work today and should not be punished for it. Right. And you have a law degree, so the well-known Audre Lorde quote, can the master's tools dismantle the master's house? And right. her answer is resoundingly pretty much no. Right. <laughs> you have to step out of it. So I think, can you say something when you say to dismantle white supremacy or to resist that? Can that be done within the existing structures? And I don't mean UVA particularly, but institutions that are built on it seem, seemingly, or at least that's the criticism. Can that be done within or do we have to rethink a couple other things, as Audre Lorde would propose. Yeah, I think you're right that, um, and, and she's right, that we do have to entirely rethink things. And so I think the structures themselves have to be radically altered. I mean, what we saw in Charlottesville this summer was kind of a repeat, a rehashing of, of what's been happening repeatedly throughout history. And we do really need to to rethink things and radically change kind of the, the structures themselves, because there's all these arguments for preserving this the status quo, which are going to simply do just that, preserve the status quo so that years from now we'll still be fighting against white supremacy. And so in, until we're willing to actually radically shake up the system, radically rethink how they how we do things, you know, whether it's thinking about you know, abolishing the prison system, abolishing police as we now know them. I mean, one way to radically rethink how the university operates would be to have open enrollment. You know, we, we seem to be tied to this idea that we need to be an elite, selective university. But is that really, truly pushing us forward past kind of this, you know, the, the system of, of white supremacy here? Are we really serving all of the residents of Virginia in that way? It's interesting because, you know, as you know, you know, the framers had a discussion whether we should have a national university like many countries do, and Washington ultimately opposed this. He would have been the first president of such a university. He said, no, we have a lot of states that have their own universities. Mm -hmm. But that discussion then was conducted by white men who left a large part of the population out of those discussions. So mm -hmm. today this discussion would have different resonance because open access would mean maybe even out access rather than just keeping the people going to universities who've always been going to universities. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the population at the University of Virginia does not reflect the actual population of the state of Virginia. And so, but yeah, it's hard to even get to a point of having that discussion because it's kind of a, such a radical way of, of thinking about the university differently. But I think going back to your original question, I think is that kind of thinking, that kind of radical changes to the structure that we need to really be able to move forward. Otherwise, we're just preserving the status quo. Can I ask you a little bit about the way the argument about free speech has been, I think, somewhat reductively used as a self-evident claim, free speech is absolute, and it's absolutely right to have free speech, and that's about it. And I've actually been quite interested whether law schools are doing a good enough job to explain to the general public how the First Amendment actually operates and why we have it and whether free speech is really covered in all instances, which of course it isn't as we know, but once you say that you've already committed some kind of blasphemy against American <laughs> sacred beliefs. Right. So do you think there's a way, because you're in a law school, to 
open up this discussion more and allow people to say, well, free speech has maybe it isn't just a bunch of white supremacists coming with torches onto a campus. Maybe that is not really what free speech is supposed to protect. Yeah, I mean, I think we have the opportunity to do that right here, you know, in, in Charlottesville and use as examples what ha happened last year and what is continuing to happen. So the organizer of, of the rallies of last summer is trying to reorganize them this summer. He, he, in fact, just filed an injunction in court on Friday in federal court, arguing that he has a free speech right to hold second rally, a Unite the Right reunion rally on August 12, 2018. And we could use that. I mean, let's, you know, let's use that as an example to have an actual serious, honest discussion of is this actually free speech? When he's talking about conducting a reunion rally of what was essentially a, an act of violence in which one person was murdered in the city of Charlottesville, are we really talking about free speech? And if we are, what exactly we, do we mean? And who is it protecting? Is it really protecting all members of our society Or is it still just protecting the same people that white supremacy has always protected in this country? Right. And it's interesting to me that someone like that is able to frame the debate and enlist a lot of people on his side who are otherwise presumably liberals. So, and yeah. I found it striking that last year in the deposition in court, so uh, he said and promised under oath that it would be a peaceful rally. And the ACLU keeps on quoting that, that he swore that under oath as if that meant anything to this person who completely right. disregards the rules. And I find it interesting. There are lots of very well-trained lawyers, far more experienced and knowledgeable, of course, than I am. I'm not a lawyer. And they say, well, he said it under oath, so we have to give it some credence. And I right. thought, he has no respect for the facts, for truth, for right. honesty. And you're treating him as if he's participating in your game in the on the same level. That's right. Giving him the benefit of the doubt. At the same time, you're not giving the benefit of the doubt to other people who were saying right up front, he's lying. We have evidence that they're planning violence. We have evidence of them discussing running people over with cars. We know that they're going to be bringing shields and sticks and guns and they're planning violence. And so at the same time that the court and the ACLU was giving the benefit of the doubt to Jason Kessler, who was lying under oath, they're not giving the benefit of the doubt to other people who are saying, we have evidence right here that it's going to be violent. And so it kind of comes back to that again. Who is this concept of, of free speech protecting? Yeah. And is it really free speech or is it just pre preservation of the status quo? Interesting. So, what do you, so how are you going into your summer? I mean, it's already late June in Charlottesville. I was there two weeks ago. Um, and it is an incredibly beautiful town. And actually, I think it's just devastating in a way that is now in the world's attention. It's looked at as saying this is the hotbed of controversy and this is where people get murdered over the ideology of white supremacy, which is a terrible taint in a way. So how does the city move forward as a city? I think the biggest step, and a lot of people have been saying this for a long time, is not pretending that this was some kind of aberration or, like you said, it's a, a taint. This has been happening for a long time in Charlottesville. There's a big pilgrimage taking place this summer to the lynching memorial in Alabama in which they're going to take dirt from the ground where a man was lynched here in the in the late 1800s, right here in Charlottesville over 100 years ago. And so I think the biggest step to take is to stop pretending 
that Charlottesville is this beautiful, idyllic college town. For a lot of people, it has been the opposite. It has been an oppressive, difficult place to live. And I think that's probably the the biggest step for a lot of people going into the summer is, is to realize that. And that seems to already have happened over the year a bit. I've talked to people and yep. I was actually impressed how detailed their knowledge was of when these statues were put up, yep. what the purpose was, what the intention behind is, why they are such, of such symbolic significance to this movement right now. Yes. So there's a kind of educational effect that people are probably learning more about this history that had really been obfuscated or intentionally repressed or buried for for not everybody, but for mainstream, let's say, mainstream media or a lot of other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that actually has been a positive development. I think even in the last year, there's been a huge shift in the town, like you said, just about learning and acknowledging the, the real history, not only of the Confederate monuments, but of the city itself. And so that is a positive development. There's still a lot of obstacles in the way to reaching actual justice in the city. But yeah, it has been a, a good shift, I think, in the, in the mainstream population here. Can I ask you, you know, just your opinion? I mean, I would have obviously also an opinion on the ACLU's role in this. I've talked to the former president of the ACLU, who's very staunchly committed to defending neo-Nazis in court and very committed to that and thinks it gives the organization credibility. And she thinks, well, if we defend people on the far right, then people will respect and pay more attention to us. So I'm just curious what you think, whether they should maybe change their tactic or continue to do this or and not go to court on behalf of a Jason Kessler? Yeah, so I think they absolutely should not go to court on behalf of Jason Kessler. And this was particularly the ACLU of Virginia that litigated on his behalf last year, and they caused direct harm to Charlottesville in doing that. So I absolutely think they should no longer take that stance. And they're not doing that. They've refused to represent him in his current court case. And my understanding, too, is that ACLU National has shifted its policy a bit to make it clear that they will not necessarily represent violent white supremacists, that they need to take kind of a, a bigger picture ethical look at, at that kind of thing. And so I think that's been a positive change from the ACLU. But I, I don't think, I disagree with the idea that it gives them credibility. I don't see how with the, the history, the violent history of white supremacy that we have in the United States, how representing these white supremacists to allow them to commit more violence gives anybody more credibility. And I think, you know, to the extent that comes up again for the ACLU, they, they, they need to rethink that. Right. I want to raise one other issue, which you know, I'm trying to understand like a lot of people. So when President Trump, after the events, was somewhat equivocal and didn't really take a very strong position right away, which had really been the first time a president had not taken a strong position for at least 40 years or so. Even George W. Bush in 1991 actually directly talked about the Louisiana election and condemned and completely condemned and repudiated David Duke and said, this is not somebody who I could even consider as a serious person in my party right. who was a Republican president. So, But when this happened, what do you think that does when the president sort of hesitates or equivocates or is actually really saying, well, there may be some good people on all sides, et cetera, those quotes, for the larger understanding of such events? 
It, well, I think it creates a real problem. I mean, on uh, on the one hand, it emboldens them. It allows them to think that they've been sanctioned by the, the president of the United States uh, and keep moving forward with their, their violent rhetoric and actual violence. It then also causes real problems in larger society as well, because it sanctions this kind of rhetoric. It sanctions this kind of racist, violent rhetoric and makes people think it's okay. It makes people think, oh, well, we actually can have a debate about it. You know, on one side of the debate, you have people who are trying to dehumanize and commit violence against people. And on the other side, you have people opposed to that. And it allows society to think that, that that's actually an even debate. You know, it's, it's something that you consider, you can consider, you know, the, the thoughts on, on both sides of the issue, which to, to me is a real problem. And you have it here. I mean, the university did the same thing. I mean, so on August 11th, like we already talked about, these, you know, this mob, essentially, essentially like a lynch mob, came marching through campus with torches. The university did nothing for a variety of reasons, one of which was, you know, probably a mistaken belief in free speech ideals. And that emboldened the white supremacists so that they went out the next day and committed even more violence. If the university had, had actually just come right out and shut that down, perhaps August 12th wouldn't have been so violent. And so I think what, what the president did is he emboldened violence you know, in, in, our, in our society. I think it's, in addition, what's complicated is that this fine line between tolerating someone's right to speech Mm -hmm. but condemning the content of their speech. This kind of pseudo-Voltairean distinction, it's not really Voltaire who said that, but I'll defend to the death your right to say the things I abhor. Um, mm -hmm. Or Lee Bollinger in this book, The Tolerant Society, says the line between toleration and condemnation has to be drawn. Mm -hmm. And Bollinger talked about Skokie in the 70s, and he said anti-Semitism yes. isn't such a big threat in America, not really credible. It's just a bunch of lunatic fringe people. So we don't have to worry about it so much. We can let this sort of just be spoken about. You're identifying white supremacy. You're saying it's not that little thing on the margins. It doesn't affect anybody, but it is actually a real existential physical threat to members of the American community of our citizenship. So by not, by tolerating the speak, the right to speak, but not condemning the message, something is opened up. Yeah. And, and again, I think where I kind of disagree with the framing there is that it's not a free speech issue. This is, we're talking about threats of violence yes, yeah. and actual violence. And we saw that in Charlottesville. Yes, they are physically speaking. Uh, they are using words. But to me, it's not a free speech issue. They are making threats of violence and then actually committing violence. Mm -hmm. To me, it's not even an issue of supporting the right to free speech while condemning the message. Yep. It's that this isn't speech. This is threats of violence. And that's how white supremacy has been supported in the United States throughout history is through these threats of violence. Those statues themselves are inherent threats of violence. They're reminders not to step out of line. They dominate the landscape and remind people that, you know, you need to go along with the system of white supremacy or face the consequences. And so, you know, I just come back to that point that this is not a this is not a free speech there. This is not this is not an issue of speech. Yeah. Uh, it's an issue of violence. Yeah, yeah. this is no this is really, really helpful. Ben. I really think that's a really powerful point to make and very important to sort of shift the debate into the right place and say mm -hmm. they're using this term for the wrong reasons and intentionally 
to not focus on what they're really after because then they would probably be shut down. Right. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's what I think is going on. Well, I, I really want to thank you. And I actually really, I personally, I really appreciate that you're taking the time to talk about this, which, as you said, was a difficult, is a difficult year. But there is some sense that people have already learned a lot and actually are probably made more mindful and aware of the history behind these events, that they're not single incidents that take us yeah. out of the ordinary and then we go back to normal, that there's a larger question how to change our society. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's what yeah. my hope is, yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you joining the podcast and I hope to talk to you again at some point, Ben. Terrific. Thank Thanks very much. I, okay. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Yep, bye-bye.